Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Zechariah chapter 7. I mentioned in the first episode in this series that the structure of Zechariah is fairly straightforward. We have basically three distinct blocks of material. A series of night visions running from chapter 1, verse 7 through to chapter 6, verse 15, followed by a series of oracles concerned with fasting and the essence of right religion in chapter 7, 1 through chapter 8, 23, and then ending with a section of eschatological writings in two parts, beginning in chapter 9, verse 1, and carrying on through to the end of chapter 14. So we have visions, oracles, and eschatological writings. So based on that structure, obviously we're entering into the middle part of the book. If you're a veteran of the Old Testament, then you know that often in Jewish writings, the middle part holds the key to understanding the whole. And that may be the case here. The arrangement may be suggesting that in some important way, all of the eschatological hopes of the people are related to the practice of right religion. Just like all of their immediate hopes with respect to the rebuilding of the temple and the reestablishing of the people are also in some important way connected to the practice of right religion. They got into this mess by neglecting their covenant obligations. They were sent into exile because their religion had become mixed, perfunctory, and ritualistic. They still had fasts and feasts and ceremonies, but they did not rightly honor and fear the Lord. And so the prophet is saying to the people, that though the future depends upon the grace of God alone, their experience and enjoyment of the future does depend in some very real way upon their rediscovery and recommitment to the essence of right religion. Now that tension is all over the Old Testament. Two things are said, which to our ears as readers can seem a bit contradictory. The Old Testament clearly says that the future that everyone has been waiting for and looking forward to will come about as the result of the sovereign grace and providential action of Almighty God. It is something that He will do. It is something that His people will receive. And yet the Bible also says that the blessings of God will be released into the world through an obedient covenant partner. And so that's why the Old Testament seems to be characterized by this up and down, stop and start dynamic. The future is certain, yet frequently delayed because of the disobedience of Israel. And so the question arises, how will these blessings ever be realized and enjoyed? And for that answer, of course, we will have to wait for the New Testament and the coming of the long-awaited Messiah, the new Adam, the new Israel, the son of David, and the son of God. But we get ahead of ourselves. Today in Zechariah 7, we're entering into a discussion about the true nature of covenant life and worship. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Let's just pause here for a moment. This is the third date in the book of Zechariah. By our reckoning, this would be December 7th, 
518 BC. So that's almost two years after the night visions ended and about two years before the rededication of the temple in 516 BC. That is the context for the question that now follows. We begin to hear about that in verse 2. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regem Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? So this delegation from Bethel has a question about fasting. There were a number of fasts instituted by the Jewish community in exile commemorating the devastating events of the 6th century B.C. This particular fast in the fifth month looks back upon the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. But now, with the reconstruction project well underway, the question naturally arises. Should we still commemorate this fast or should we cancel it or maybe even transform it into a festival of Thanksgiving? That was the question. And apparently, the question had arisen at the last celebration of the fast, about four months prior. The folks in Bethel had wondered, why are we still doing this? Why are we weeping and moping about for the temple when the rebuilding project is now making such encouraging progress? So to get some guidance on this matter, the delegation has traveled down to Jerusalem, which was about 20 kilometers south of the city of Bethel. When they came to Zechariah, he obviously sought the Lord and then responded in the following way. Verse 4, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? So, first thing we notice here is that God doesn't answer their question, at least not yet. He will eventually answer their question. The answer is found in chapter 8, verses 18 to 19. But before he answers their question, he rebukes their sense of priority and scale. You have questions about religious rituals, he says, but I have questions about religious hypocrisy. When you engage in these rituals, is it really about me or is it all a sham and a show? That's what the Lord is asking. Was it for me that you did these things or was it for you? Was this fast about longing for the presence of God in your midst or was it merely a stage for the performance art of public self-flagellation and virtue signaling. What's really going on here? God is putting his finger on something that has long been a cause of concern within the covenant community, our capacity for religious hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy is not about falling short of an agreed-upon standard. That's how our critics seem to understand that term. Whenever believers today fall short of their own standards, someone will point at them and say, you see, that's why I'm not a Christian, because Christians are all a bunch of hypocrites. But that's not what a hypocrite is, according to the Bible. Falling short of an agreed-upon standard isn't hypocrisy, it's sin. And we believe that all people are sinners. No, hypocrisy means something specific. It means to play a role. It means to put on a performance. It means to do something for the honor that you can get out of it, as opposed to the honor that God gets through it. 
Religion will always appeal to a certain type of person because of its potential as performance art. The rituals and disciplines provide an opportunity for virtue signaling and martyr playing. And Jesus really pressed into that in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember? He said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That's Matthew 6.1. And then in Matthew 6.16, he said, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. And that's exactly what's going on here, isn't it? God is saying, these fasts, are they really for me or are they for you? Is, is this worship or performance art? Let's get that sorted out before we decide on how to proceed with the liturgical calendar, shall we? Now, Zechariah says that this message had been given to the people before by the former prophets. So we think of prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and also Micah, Amos, and Hosea. They all tried to communicate that the essence of religion was not ritual, but right behavior. So Hosea, for example, in Hosea 4 said, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Closed quote. The Lord's concern with you, the prophet says, is not about your rituals or ceremonies. His concern is with your behavior. You need to get that sorted out because your worship doesn't mean anything if it is not accompanied by a commitment to walk in God's ways. The prophet Isaiah said much the same thing. In Isaiah 58, God says, Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow his head down like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? and bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Close quote. So the prophets had been saying for years that religious ritual means nothing if it is not accompanied by a heart of humility and a commitment to righteous living. The vertical and the horizontal dimensions of life have to be kept together. If you are not right with people down here, then you can't just worship your way out of that. There's no integrity in that. Your worship and your lifestyle have to go together. All the prophets were saying that, but as Thomas McComiskey points out, it is the voice of Jeremiah, however, that rings most clearly in this collage, close quote. I think that's true. What Zechariah says here does seem to echo many of the things that were said by Jeremiah 75 years previous. In Jeremiah 5:28, for example, the prophet had rebuked the people of his day, saying, They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. That's Jeremiah 5.28. 
In his famous temple sermon, he called on the people saying, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Closed quote. That's Jeremiah 7, 5 to 7. And it's basically exactly what Zechariah is saying here. He's saying, if you want to enjoy the presence of God in this place, if you want to keep your temple this time around, then you need to worry more about your conduct and a little less about your rituals. God didn't send you into exile because you said your prayers the wrong way or because you didn't fast enough. God sent you into exile because you neglected the weightier matters of the law. You didn't do justice. You didn't show mercy. You didn't defend the cause of the poor, the vulnerable, and the needy. That's what Jeremiah said. And you can definitely hear echoes of that here in Zechariah. In fact, Mick Comiskey wonders whether or not Zechariah has been studying Jeremiah as he gives these prophetic oracles. That's certainly possible. So let's hear it. We jump back into the text now at verse 8. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. So let's just pause and notice that here in verses 9 to 10, Zechariah is summarizing. He's he's. In, in essence, in God's voice, he's revoicing, reissuing the message of the earlier prophets. He says, I've got nothing for you other than what they said. They said that if you want to please and honor the Lord, then you need to render true judgments. You need to show kindness and mercy. You need to protect the widow, the fatherless, the immigrant, and the poor. You can't be devising evil against each other. That's what they said. And I've got nothing else for you. That is still what matters to the Lord. But they didn't listen. Back in Jeremiah's day, that word went out, that warning was given, but they didn't listen. They thought their rituals would save them. They thought their temple would save them. So they ignored the message that they were given. Verse 12, they made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus, the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. So the lesson here, I think, is pretty straightforward. Zechariah says, you have a question about fasting? Really? That's what you think is important? You you think your future in the land and your enjoyment of God's blessing depends on fasting? What planet are you from? What history have you been reading? How can that be your takeaway? What's wrong with you? For crying out loud, friends, we didn't get sent into exile for 70 years because of abnormalities in our fasting routine. 
We were sent into exile because God warned us through the prophets to clean up our act and to start doing justice and to start being kind and to start acting like the people of God. But we didn't listen. That's why our city was destroyed. That's why our temple was taken away. And that's why we were sent on a 70-year timeout. So how about we start thinking about that? That's the gist of his reply. Now, he mentions there four precepts as representing appropriate conduct for the people of God. He says, first of all, that they are to render true judgments. That's the sort of thing that would normally be done by judges and magistrates and officials. Sometimes this statement in the Bible will be paired with a location as in render true judgments in your gates. The city gates was uh, the place where property disputes and legal matters were adjudicated. So Zechariah is saying that the people of God should be characterized by fair and equitable laws. The second precept has to do with showing kindness and mercy. Joyce Baldwin explains this by saying, the generosity and warmth that characterized true friendship were to permeate all relationships, close quote. Thirdly, the prophet says that the people must not oppress the vulnerable. He mentions specifically the widow, the orphan, the sojourner or immigrant, and the poor. The Tyndale Old Testament commentary says here, human clannishness and love of gain were to give place among God's people to generosity, friendliness, and practical help. This was justice in his sight. Close quote. What an incredibly timely word that is. And then fourthly, the prophet says that the people must not devise evil against one another. If you do these things, then you will enjoy my presence and my blessings among you, God says. But if you neglect these things, well then, you should remember the lessons learned by the previous generation. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. It's hard to avoid the impression that we human beings tend to want religion to be about ceremonies and rituals and external forms and disciplines, whereas God is focused on matters of relationships, ethics, and right behavior. He is looking for mercy, love, and justice flowing from a transformed heart. Now, in the Old Testament, the problem really was ability. The people just could not seem to hold the road. They always ended up in the ditch, and time after time, God lifts them out of the ditch and puts them back on the road. But immediately, it seems, they start steering for the ditch again. Like here, the prophet is aghast that this is the question being brought to him by the religious leaders. How could you think that this is the major problem we are facing? If this is what you're focused on, then goodness gracious, how long will it be before we're face down in the ditch again? How long will it be before the temple is gone, the city is ruined, and we're back in exile? So in the Old Testament, the growing sense is that the people of God need a new heart. They need a new internal nav system. They're like that shopping cart with the wonky wheel that just wants to steer towards disaster. And indeed, that is the great prophetic hope that emerges in the exile. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27 says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That great hope then was for a new heart 
and a new spirit so that the people of God could live in accordance with the covenant and so find themselves able to hold on to that which God was graciously giving them to experience and enjoy. Now, of course, it isn't until we get to the New Testament where we see that hope turned into reality. Jesus gives us our new heart. He cleanses us and renews us. That's what it means to be born again. He washes us in the water and the blood, and he puts his spirit within us to cause us to walk in his ways. That's what it means to be saved. Being saved isn't just about forgiveness. It is also ultimately about restoration. It's about being helped and empowered to live as we were created and intended to live. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus fulfills our covenant obligations. He keeps the whole law for us, and he suffers the punishment our sins deserve. And then through the gift of the Holy Spirit, he enables us to live as the people of God in the world. That's what the Apostle Paul called the obedience of faith. But in terms of what it looks like, well, as we discover in the New Testament book of James, the definition really hasn't changed. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's what God is looking for in his covenant partner. And that's in the New Testament. What God is looking for in his covenant partner has not changed. He's not looking for longer fasts or for louder cries of mourning. He's not looking for more ceremonies or more ostentatious religious displays. He is looking for mercy, justice, love, and purity. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 